Hi, welcome to Counterslip Church podcast. Coming up in just a moment is this week's message, which was from 2 Samuel chapter 24. But I just want to take a moment to apologise. For some reason, something went wrong with our recording equipment and most of the sermon is a little bit distorted. Uh, But we're going to put it up anyway um, and we hope and pray that it blesses you. Today we're hanging out in 2 Samuel, okay, so we started reading 2 Samuel just a couple of days ago and um, we're actually going to be hanging out in the very, very last chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24, okay, and now I know that if you're reading the daily Bible reading you wouldn't have got that far just yet. So what I want to do is I want to really quickly give you a bit of an overview as to what happens in 2 Samuel so that we can land where we're going we're gonna to kick off today, is that alright? So here's the story. You remember when we read 1 Samuel, all about kind of, uh, uh, about, uh, <laughs> come on back, engage your brain. <laughs> we read 1 Samuel, and it was all about how Saul became king. Do you remember that? Israel wanted a king, and Saul got anointed as king and raised up as king. Uh, but then Saul didn't trust the Lord. He didn't obey what God had said. He, he did all kinds of stupid things, and we got, the, we got the rise of Saul, and then the fall of Saul. Okay, and in that process where Saul fell from the favour of the Lord, God honoured him and left him on the throne, but said, actually, my anointing is going to pass to another. It's going to pass to David. And David was anointed. This shepherd boy was anointed to become Israel's king at some point. And, and so we get the story of kind of this, the, starting, uh, the starting story of David. And as we get into uh, 2 Samuel, what we, what we get is the death of Saul. So Saul has died. And then we get the rise story of David to the throne. David becomes king, okay? And it starts off with the story of the rise of David. So Saul dies. David is anointed king in Judah. And you remember from last week we were talking about the, the, the two kingdoms. They don't exist as two separate kingdoms yet. But, but David has become the king of this southern part, this Judah down here. And then there is a character called Abner, who was a commander in the army of Saul. And Abner took Ishbosheth, what a great name. He took Ishbosheth and he made Ishbosheth king of the rest of Israel. And Ishbosheth was one of Saul's sons. And Abner took him and made him king. Even though the Lord had said David's going to be king, okay, Abner, he took Ishbosheth, he made a power play, and he put Ishbosheth on the throne. And it just gets really messy after that, because what happens next is that Abner starts going to war with David's men, and then Abner, he, he actually falls out of favor with Ishbosheth, okay, and, and so he actually betrays Ishbosheth, and he says, I'm, I'm going to go make David king, and he turns his back on Ishbosheth, really just messy story, um, and then eventually Ishbosheth is murdered. All right, so we get, we get all this kind of going on, and David actually then becomes the king of all of Israel. Okay, they come to him, and they're like, we're going to make you king. God said you were going to be king, so we're going to make you king. And then in chapter 5, we read about David conquering Jerusalem. He goes and he makes that his capital, which is really interesting, right? Just put a little peg in this, because we're going to come back to it in a bit. But interesting, because do you remember that actually Joshua already captured Jerusalem? Hang on, what's going on here? Why is David now capturing Jerusalem? Don't they already have it? We'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, and so he captures Jerusalem, and then he's like, right, where's the Ark of the Lord? Like, where's that? And so he goes and he finds it, because Saul had just kind of disregarded all of that, fallen out of favour with God. So David, he goes and gets the Ark of the Lord, the, the throne seat of God, where the presence of God dwells, and he says, let's bring it back to Jerusalem, back to the centre of the people of God. Now, 
I so wanted to preach on this, but um, God took me somewhere else, so we're going to go there. But don't worry, because the story's actually told much better when we get to Chronicles. So when we get there, we're going to do that one, all right? So, so he brings back the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and, and there's all that stuff going on. And then there's, God blesses David and speaks promise over him and reaffirms his promise to him. And then we get David seeking out any survivors from the house of Saul. Do you remember when David and Jonathan were friends? Jonathan was Saul's son. Uh, sorry, I'm going quite quick. I know, but we're just going to get through this bit, all right? So track with me. Jo- Jonathan and David were friends, and, um, and David said, hey, promise me that, you know, this friendship will last, and you will always look out for our family line, and, and David says, you've got it, right? So after all this has happened, at this point, David says, hey, is there anyone left of Saul's family line who I can honor and bless? And they find... Uh, uh, Mephibosheth, I think that's how you say his name. Yeah, got a thumbs up. Great. Mephibosheth, who is De- uh, Jonathan's son, so the grandson of Saul. And he brings him into the palace and he looks after him and there's a whole story there. Um, and then right after that story, we get the famous story that we probably all know, right? Where David, so we've got the rise of David, suddenly we start getting the fall of David. We get the story of Bathsheba. Okay, this woman that David uh, has an affair with. But not only does he have an affair with her, he actually then murders Uriah, her husband. He has him killed so that he can have uh, Bathsheba. And so he he kind of does it in a sneaky way so that it doesn't get found out that he actually has um, made Uriah's wife pregnant. So he he does it in this sneaky way. But he does get found out because along comes Nathan, one of the prophets, And Nathan speaks to him and calls him out on it. But David, he repents. And this is where we get David being a man after God's own heart, right? Because he did mess up, but he humbles himself and he repents and God forgives him. And there's all of that going on. But our sin has a consequence, right? Even though we have the forgiveness of God, the things that we do have an impact upon the world around us. And the rest of the story gets really messy because we see that happening. One of David's sons, Amnon, ends up raping his sister, Tamar. And then Absalom, Tamar's brother, murders murders Amnon. Right? Loads of names. What are we doing? So, um, so it's messy. David's family is in a complete and utter mess. One of them's raping the sister. Another brother's murdering the other brother. It all goes horribly, horribly wrong. And then Absalom creates this conspiracy to remove David from the throne. Because you get it, right? As a brother to the sister that got raped, you're like, you're the king. Why haven't you dealt with this? What a rubbish king you are. And so Absalom's like, let's get him off the throne. And he, he creates this conspiracy um, to remove David. And David flees. Uh, but then... Absalom gets murdered. I love this story. Have you read about Absalom? We read that Absalom was really handsome and he had lots of hair. Okay, even more than me. He had lots and lots of hair. Probably more handsome than me as well. I know, difficult, but... Um, so, and, and, and Absalom, he's riding along on his mule, okay? And as he's riding along on his mule, he, he rides through the forest and his big hair gets caught in a tree. And the mule runs out from underneath him and he's left hanging in the tree, caught by his hair. And... It's a crazy story, right? But then along comes one of David's men with a spear and throws it straight through him. So Absalom is murdered and then David's upset about that and David eventually returns and carries on being king and you're like, what a messy, messy story. And then following that, there's some rebellion against David. All right, are you with me? That's 2 Samuel. Okay, wait. Did we survive? Great. Um, we're now landing in 2 Samuel chapter 24, okay? And... Um, 
2 Samuel chapter 24, it starts off by telling us that the Lord was angry with Israel. The Lord was angry with Israel. And I mean, it's no surprise, is it? Because of what we just talked about. What a mess the nation was in. Horrific things that they did to one another. The way that they treated one another. Those that were supposed to be brothers in the name of the Lord. The things that they did. The power plays that they had. The, the, the way that they took each other out and slaughtered each other. And God was angry with them. And it tells us that. And so he incited David against them, it says. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, but this thing happens. And judgment comes upon the people of Israel. And um, they start dying. And I want to read to you from 2 Samuel chapter 24, from verse 18 to 25. So the last few verses. This is what happens as judgment is kind of poured out on Israel. And people start dying. This is what happens. So from verse 18. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land. And the plague on Israel was stopped. Let's just pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you God that you are a God that speaks. That you are a God that speaks into messy situations. That you are a God who, who does stop death. That you are a God who brings healing. That you are a God who responds to the prayers of your people. Thank you. And so today, God, we pray, speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, as we hang out in this, this chapter, as we read it through, as we talk about it together, I pray that you would be at work in this place. That you would be breathing life. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Great. Okay. Ah, don't you love that verse where it says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God that which cost me nothing. Now, I grew up 
I think I must have heard about four or five sermons on that verse over my time in church and at youth events and various things like that as I was growing up. I think it was preached on quite a bit, um, I seem to recall. And, and I feel like every time I heard it preached, the preach went something like this. It went, David said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God that which cost me nothing. So let me ask you, what does it cost you? What are you sacrificing? What are you laying down so that you can come before the Lord your God? That it kind of went like that. That's kind of how the preach went. And, and, and let me just say, I, I think, great, a great message. It challenged me as a young person when I heard that message. It challenged me to think, actually, yeah, following Jesus has a cost to it, right? It, it does. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. There's a cost to following Jesus. And I think it is, it's a message that we can all hear. What are we laying down? What are we surrendering? What, what does it mean for us to walk with God, to love him, to give our lives to him? Have we paid the cost? What does he mean to us? Great message. Not what I want to preach today. <laughs> All right? I think there's way more going on in this passage than that message. That is a good message, but I think there's more going on in that passage. And, and so... Just to give you a little bit of context and a little bit of, um, a little bit of the reason why I'm going to view this differently, and maybe some of you already have and that's great, but why I'm going to look at this differently, I want to take you to, to Luke for a second, if that's okay. We're going to lay a little bit of foundation and then we're going to jump back to this passage. So Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 25 to 27. And this is the story where Jesus has died, okay, and uh, the disciples are not aware that he has risen again from the grave, and they are devastated. They are walking, uh, some of them, on the road to Emmaus, and they are like, I can't believe it. Our hope was in him. What has happened? Where has he gone? What does this mean for us? And suddenly this guy shows up and starts walking with them, and he's like, oh, hi friends, what's wrong? Why, why are you so sad? And they're like, have you not heard? Have you not heard? Jesus, the one we thought was the Messiah, he's died. They're like, where have you been? Everybody knows about this. And then I love this. <laughs> Jesus, just, he looks at them and then it says, it says this, verse 25. He said to them, idiots, quite literally in the Greek. Okay. He said, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, we are not ancient Jews. So we view the Old Testament like this. There's the books of Moses, then there's the historic books, the history books, then there's the wisdom books, then there's the minor prophets, and then there's the major prophets. And we've got about five different sections that we look at when we look at the Old Testament. But if you were a first century Jew, there weren't five sections, there were two. Two. There were the books of Moses and the prophets. 
that's how the Old Testament was divided up. If you were a Jew, that's how you thought of it. So what we call the history books, they refer to as the former prophets. Okay, like so Joshua, Judges, uh, Samuel, all of that, they view those as prophetic books that look back upon the story of Israel and speak prophetically what God was doing throughout the history of Israel. And then the rest of the prophets, the minor and the major prophets that we look at, uh, they look at that and they call that the the latter prophets, those that looked forward to what God was doing and speaking into the now and the future. Are you with me? So when Jesus looks at them and he says, guys, let me explain to you about the Messiah. And starting with Moses and all the prophets. So basically, Jesus took them on a walk through the whole of the Old Testament and showed them how all of it was about him. All of it was about him. In Matthew's Gospel, um, we read about Jesus as the new Moses. We read about Jesus as the new David. And, And what they understood, what the Gospel writers understood, was that the characters of the Old Testament, Moses, Joshua, David, you, you name it, they were foreshadows of the one who was to come. They were pointing God's doing this now, but one day he's going to do it in glory when he himself comes to do it. This is what it's going to look like, so look out for it. They were foreshadows of what Jesus was going to do and what Jesus was going to be like. And so it, it baffles me, you know, it baffles me that we, we read the Bible, and I'm guilty of this. We, we read the Bible and we read it looking for us in the story. Don't you do that? You, you read it and you're like, oh, where am I in the story? What does this say to me? And that's, that's okay. I think that's okay because we're all called to be like Jesus. So we should see something of Jesus in us. But ultimately, the whole of the Bible, the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Now, how often do we read it and go, where do I see Jesus in the story? And what does this story teach me about Jesus and who he is? And, and, and so today, today what I want us to do is just to read those few verses again. And I want us to look for what we see about Jesus in the story. Is that okay? I find it amazing. How cool is this? When you start to... Little little, um, headline for you, okay? Just a little kind of looking forward to the hope that this brings. When we start reading about Jesus in the Bible rather than us. When you take the story of David and Goliath, how many sermons did you hear growing up? How many times have you read that story and thought, right, I'm David... And my Goliath, what do I need to slay? What must I do? What giants do I need to bring down? What fears, worries, anxieties, temptations, sins, addictions? What, what things do I need to bring down? Man, good luck bringing down Goliath. <laughs> All right? You are not David in the story. I am not David. Do you know who we are? We're the Israelite army cowering on the mountain going, Aah! That's who we are. All right. In the story, David is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's going to take down your Goliath. Jesus is the one who's going to bring victory to the people of God. Jesus is David. So let yourself off the hook. Stop trying to slay your giants and let him do it. Because he's going to be better at it. He is. Isn't that good news? Right. 
So let's have a look now and see what it looks like when we think about David as Jesus in this story. Okay? When we suddenly start thinking, well, what must I do to please the Lord? What must I sacrifice? What cost will it be to me? So let's start from verse 18. And we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study tour. I'm just going to pull out a few things and then we'll pull it all together at the end. Is that all right? So um, if you've got your notebooks and your pens or your notes open on your phone, you might want to get ready to start writing stuff down. (laughs) But here we go. So verse 18. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord, Yahweh. It's in capital letters, right? So this is actually to the Lord, to Yahweh, God himself, on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Okay, first up, he's called to go and build an altar. What is an altar? An altar is a place of sacrifice. An altar is essentially a table upon which an animal is slaughtered. Okay, a sacrifice is made. It's a place of death. It's a place of sacrifice. So David's going to go and build a place of sacrifice. Where is he going to go build it? On the threshing floor. Oh, I love this. On the threshing floor. Now, as you read through the Bible, uh, the, the, the prophets and the biblical authors, they, they take images that they use to represent other things. And the threshing floor, it becomes an image of judgment. Okay, of judgment. You'll read about that in uh, Psalm chapter 1, verse 4, Hosea 13, verse 3, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse... What have got to write down? Yeah, 12. There we go. Matthew 3, verse 12. Um, and, and you'll read throughout the Bible the, this imagery of the threshing floor used as a place of judgment. Why is that? Well, on the threshing floor, they would place all of the, the kind of harvested crop and they'd trample over it to break it up. And then they would get what they called a winnowing fork, okay? And they would lift it up and throw it up into the air. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> Just throwing it up into the air. And as it went up into the air, what happened was, because the wheat is heavier than the chaff, the dust, the bit that you don't really want, right? So as it was thrown up in the air, the wind would blow the chaff away, and the wheat, the heavier stuff, would fall back down to the floor. So it was separated, it was judged between. They were separated. And then the, the wheat was then brought in to the barn. And the chaff was just blown out. It was gone. And so it became this image of judgment, of, of separation. God's want, God wants to separate the good and the bad in our lives. He wants to call in the good and remove the evil, remove the sin. That's the idea of the threshing floor. Okay? So, so, so in this story, David, the king, a foreshadowing of Jesus... It's going to build an altar, a place of sacrifice, in the place of judgment. I love this. Okay. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through God. What do we know about Jesus? Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. That's what he said. His own words. I only do what I see the Father doing. What did David do? The Lord spoke and David did it. The Lord spoke and David did it. Verse 20. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about Aruna. Okay, who is this character that owns this threshing floor that David wants to buy? Um, it's really interesting because in the Hebrew, if you go back and read chapter 24 in the Hebrew, uh, and by read what I mean is scan over and look for the things that kind of, because who actually reads Hebrew here? I don't. Um, I just kind of look it up and try and see what, what, what's going on here and I'm trying to learn from it as we go, right? 
But if you go back and you look through, what you'll discover is there are three different words in Hebrew. Three. That all gets translated into the English as Aruna. I don't even know if I'm saying that properly in English, let alone in Hebrew. Um, but there are three different words. And you think, hang on a minute. Why are there three different Hebrew words that all get translated to one word in the English? And the reason is because Aruna is not a Hebrew word. It's not a Hebrew word. So probably what happened was, was that the Hebrew authors, they, they heard this word being said, and then they tried to write it in the best way that they could in the Hebrew. So they ended up with three different slight variations of how you might write this word in the Hebrew. Aruna is actually um, an ancient Mesopotamian word. Okay? Um, and it actually means Lord. So one of the translations in the Hebrew is, to, is like Adonai, okay? Adonai, Aruna. Like you, see, you see that? Are they how they write that and it gets translated? Which means Lord. Lord. So Lord owns this threshing floor, okay? And in fact, just to back that up, at one point in the Hebrew, it has this word Ha Aruna in front of it. And Ha in Hebrew means the. The Aruna. Well, you wouldn't say the mat stood up to preach, would you? You know, I mean, maybe you would. I, I don't know. Maybe we should put that on our website. Um, <laughs> that would be weird, right? So, so the Aruna. What's it say? It's the Lord. Okay, the Lord. Uh, and if you look at the, chapter 24, verse 23, this is one of my little knocks at the NIV, which I love, but here we go. Bad translation again. So verse 23 says, Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Really poor translation from the Hebrew into the English. Because it sounds like in the English, Aruna is saying to David, Oh, your majesty, I give you all this. But in the Hebrew, it actually reads like this. The king, Aruna gives all this to the king. That's how it actually reads. So what we're discovering is that Aruna isn't this person's name. It's a title. He's a lord and a king. A Canaanite ruler. Okay, that's who he is. He's a Canaanite ruler. Um, and I love this because that means he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's somebody else. So what happens? Here we get David coming in. David shows up unexpected at, at this threshing floor. And suddenly, this king, the Lord, Aruna, he, he comes out and he bows down to him. Ah, we're coming up towards Christmas, right? And what happens in the Christmas story? Jesus arrives and these Gentile rulers, these magi, these, these, these wise and kind of uh, uh, people of authority and position, they come and they bow down to Jesus. They bow down before him. Let's go to verse 21. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David said, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Why is David gone? David wanted to buy the place of judgment, the threshing floor, to buy it. So that the plague, and the Hebrew word there that's used, we translate as plague, it can mean plague, but it can mean slaughter, or it can mean defeat. Okay, I'm buying up the place of judgment so that this defeat can be stopped. So that death can be stopped. So that the people can live. Why is he doing that? Because at the start of 2 Samuel chapter 24, what do we read? We read that the Lord is angry with Israel. 
because of their sin. Because we just we, we skimmed through the whole story of 2 Samuel, didn't we? What a mess. What a mess that story is. And God is right. This is not who my people should be. This is not what it looks like to live life in all its fullness. And there's anger that I did not create you to live like this. And their sin has consequence. And, uh, and God raises up David at the start of 2 Samuel 24. And he incites, them against, he incites him against Israel. It's a bit of a weird passage and we get a bit funny about it. What's going on here? What's God doing? Did God really turn David against his own people? But as you read what happens, you read that David goes and takes a census. Okay, And what is a census? A census is a taking account of things, isn't it? A taking account of people. He counts. So what happens is this, as I see it. 2 Samuel 24, everything's a mess. And God is angry. He's angry at Israel. So he raises up David and he incites him to go and count the people, to go and take stock of the people, to go and kind of make uh, a survey of, of how many there are, of what is going on. What does that say to us? Actually, God judged them. God called them forth and said, look, this is who you are. This is your count. This is the number of you. This is the sum of who you are. And then he brings judgment upon them. Now, David goes and buys the place of judgment so that this punishment might be stopped. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. To save the world through him. What's going on here? David, as a foreshadowing of Jesus, has come to buy up the place of judgment and build an altar there to make a sacrifice so that the people of God would not die any longer, but live, but live. Wow. Wow. So then we get to verses 22 down to 25. And uh, are you with me so far? Yeah, great, okay. We get verses 22 down to 25, and we get the whole thing about how he's going to make this sacrifice, and he won't sacrifice that which cost him nothing. And, and the word sacrifice, that is, as translated there, actually is the word offering in Hebrew, which is the word or law, okay? And it means, it means to send up, or to go up, okay? It's this idea of, like, if I burn something, the smoke rises up to send up, okay? And so David says, hey, I will not allure something to my God that cost me nothing. I will not send up before my God, send up to my God, that which cost me nothing. Jesus has come that we might be reconnected with the Father. He came to pay the price that we could be sent up, that we could be restored to our God. You see, all of what we read about David points to Jesus. It points to Jesus. It points to the fact that Jesus has come to make an offering in the place of judgment so that the people of God could live and not die. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I mean, come on. 
This isn't a story about how much am I willing to lay down so that I can earn the favor of my God. This is a story about how much my God has laid down so that I can be restored to him and I can live. This is the gospel. Oh, what a gospel it is. What a gospel it is. Wow. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 13. Let's jump into the New Testament. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus thinks you're worth it. It means that Jesus looked at you and he said, I'm going to give everything to restore this person, to restore these people to relationship with God so that they can live and not die. And in Matthew 13, Jesus tells some parables. He tells some parables about the kingdom of God. And, and we get to this one parable, um, the parable of uh, treasure hidden in a field and the parable of, the, of um, pearls, these fine pearls, the pearl of great price. And we read them, they, they go like this. They go that there was a man who found treasure in a field. And, and when he saw the treasure, he was like, I want that treasure. So he went away and he sold everything that he had. It cost him everything. He sold everything that he had so that he could come and buy the whole field so that what was in it was legally his, that he could have it. There was a man, a merchant, who found a pearl of great price. And so he went and he sold everything that he had so that he could buy that pearl. Now, I don't know why we do this, but quite often when we get to these two parables, we, we suddenly make ourselves the man. We, we are the merchant. And suddenly it becomes a story where I need to sell everything I have so that I can have the kingdom of God in my life, the pearl of great price. Or I need to go and sell everything that I have so that I can have the treasure hidden in the field and have the kingdom of God in my life. But I find that so bonkers because if you look at the context of the parables around it, so you get these other parables, and in the, in the other parables where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this, he tells a, a story, a parable, and in those parables the man, the person in the story, is God. Is God. And in fact, Jesus actually explains this to the people. Uh, he, he explains the parable of the weeds in verse 34. He says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. It's me, Jesus. And then we get to these parables about the pearl and the treasure, and we suddenly make the man us. We need to buy. We need to sell. We need to give everything to have Jesus. That's not how it goes. Jesus gave everything to have you. You're the pearl. You're the treasure. You're it. The kingdom of God is like this. A man who sold everything to have them. To have it. You see, for the joy that was set before him, he gave himself for us. He looked at you and he went, I want you. I love you. I'm going to give everything to have you. To be your king. So that you can live in my kingdom. To make you part of my kingdom, part of my realm. I am given everything for you. So what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? Well, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 21 tell us this. The kingdom of God is not something that people can say, there it is, or there it is, or here it is, or it looks like this. No, 
Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's, it's in you. It's you. It's part of who you are. When you come under the price that he paid, when you are owned by him, you become part of it. It's you. It dwells in you. Ephesians tells us that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, in ancient times, temples, temples, they, they were more than just places of worship. Temples were the throne seats of gods. The throne seats of gods. They were the palaces of the divine. You are the throne seat of God. You are where he wants to dwell. Let's get back to our story in 2 Samuel, okay? So, the threshing floor belonged to a Jebusite. Okay, a Jebusite. I want to hold all of that stuff in your head, or on a bit of paper, somewhere we're coming. I'm going to link it all in. So, back to 2 Samuel and the, and the Jebusite. Well, well where, where was this threshing floor? Where did this Jebusite live? Go to 2 Samuel, chapter 5. Verses 6 and 7 say this. It's about David conquering Jerusalem, okay? Which is weird, right? Because didn't Joshua already conquer Jerusalem? So, chapter 5, verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. A little bit of history about the, the, the uh, city of Jerusalem for you, okay? So Jerusalem, we all understand where it is in Judah. Okay, we know a bit about Jerusalem. But what many of us don't realize about Jerusalem is that there was this big city, but then in the midst of it, there was this, this big hill, this big mountain, okay? And up on it was a fortified uh, little kind of city, okay? There was this other thing. And this is where the Jebusites lived. So when Joshua came across and he conquered Jerusalem, he conquered the lower city, if you like. He didn't conquer where the Jebusites live. So in David's time, they still lived there. And then suddenly David comes along with his army and he's like, we're taking that fortress. And the Jebusites are like, nah. Like, you can never get in here. Even our blind and lame could ward you off. There's no way you're getting up here. But he does, he takes it. And he makes it the city of David. This is where Aruna the Jebusite lived. In this place, on this mountain. This is where the threshing floor was. This is what David buys off of him. And that mountain was called Mount Moriah. And on Mount Moriah, a certain guy called Abraham took his son Isaac to offer him. But God stepped in and made a way. That was before David. Do you want to know what happened next after David? After David bought that threshing floor on Mount Moriah, Solomon built a temple there. And when Solomon built the temple and dedicated it, man, I can't wait to read this story with you guys. But when he built the temple and dedicated the spirit of the Lord went, and it came and it filled the temple. And God took up residence in the temple and said, yes, I want to dwell here. I want to make this my throne room amongst my people. And you know, if you're an ancient Jew, when you walked into the temple, it wasn't like just walking into counterslip. All right. When you walked into the temple, you literally believed that you walked into 
heaven. That's what they believed. Because where God was present, heaven was present. So they walked in to heaven. And we get to the New Testament and Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are where God wants to dwell. He wants to make you his throne seat. Mount Moriah also is a big region. And in the region of Mount Moriah, there's a hill called Golgotha. And so also on Mount Moriah, Jesus died to pay the price so that the people of God could live. So that the people of God could have the spirit of God, the very presence of God, come and dwell in them. John 17, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, I've come that they could have life. And he says, and this, this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they might know you, Father. Jesus came to build an altar in the place of judgment so that we, the people of God, rather than receiving judgment, could receive the Spirit of God and the life of God. And we would not die, but be brought to life. Why? Because when God shows up, it's like light bursting into darkness. Darkness disappears. When the presence of God shows up, sin and death, they go. And we have been made holy by his presence. Because Jesus paid the price. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 and Romans chapter 5, the whole of it into chapter 6. It talks about the fact that he bore our sins that we might live. That we might live. Guys, I want you to hear this today. He loves you. He loves you. He does not want you to die. He wants you to live. You are the pearl of great price. You are the treasure hidden in a field. And he wants you, all of you. He wants to put his spirit in you. So that the fruit of the spirit might be produced in you and that you might live. And do you know what? He looks at the mess of your life. He looks at the sin and the darkness and the dirt of all of us. And he says... I'm going to build an altar in the place of judgment and I am going to pay the cost so that that is dealt with and they can live. So that the temple of God, the kingdom of God can be established in their lives. That's what this story tells us. Because David is a foreshadow of Jesus, not of you. So some of you today need to hear that, that he loves you. That he loves you and that he gave himself for you. But some of us who know that, we need to be brought back again to rediscover that when we read the scriptures, we need to look for Jesus and not for us. Because some of us, we know that he loves us. But as we've been reading through the Bible, as we've been living out our lives, we've been looking for us in the story. And Jesus is saying, look at me. 
Because when you look at me, you get life. If you look at me, you have seen the Father, and the Father gives life. Some of us have been wandering through our Christian life for months and years, still feeling like we did before we were saved. But we are saved, but we haven't been living in it. Because we keep looking for us in the story. We keep looking for us in life. So some of us today need to lift our eyes off of ourselves and back onto the cross. Back onto Jesus and discover the price that he paid because he loves us. And the life that he wants you to have. I want you to walk out of this this place today knowing that he loves you. But more than just knowing it, I want you to walk out of here living in it. That's his heart for you. That's his heart for you.